The church is responsible for an incredible amount of evil in the world and throughout world history. Now, in our run-through service, I pointed to all those people. But I'm not going to point to those people today. But the church is responsible for an incredible amount of evil in the world and throughout world history. That might be something that you believe. That might be something that you've heard. That might be something that you have wrestled with. That's something that I myself have wrestled with in my faith journey. Is what about the Crusades? What about the Inquisition? And how do we, we balance that with the church, with our faith? That question, that statement, the church is responsible for an incredible amount of evil in the world and throughout world history. It's a powerful statement, but is that statement true? It's that statement that we're going to look at today. We're going to try to evaluate whether or not that statement is true. And we're in week three of a four-part series that we're calling The Church, where we're looking at how the church got its start, where it came from, and where the church has going, and where the church has kind of gotten things, some things wrong. Now, if you haven't been with us, just a quick recap. Um, we started out this series by looking at how the church got its start. We talked about how Jesus started the church by empowering his first apostles, his first followers with his spirit to go out and to proclaim the good news of his kingdom, to proclaim the fact that his kingdom had indeed come on earth as it was in heaven. We saw how that spread throughout the Roman Empire. Then last week we looked at how the, the church spread then throughout the world, throughout world history. We looked at some of the high points. And we said that we are surrounded, looking at the, the book of, or the letter uh, to the Hebrews, that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, cheering us on, encouraging us to run the race, to fix our eyes on Jesus, and to not look around at anything else. And this week, we're continuing now the rest of the story. We're looking at, okay, well, what else has happened? What else has the church gotten wrong? You see, this, this objection that the church is responsible for an incredible amount of evil, or I can't be a Christian because of the Crusades, I can't be a Christian because of the Inquisition, is something that perhaps many of us have wrestled with. Perhaps it's the thing that has kept you from faith because you just can't comprehend a, a good God would allow his church to carry out the Crusades, and so you don't believe in God then because of the Crusades or because of the Inquisition. Or maybe this is something that has caused you to, to caution other people from their their faith. When it comes to faith, you're like, hey, I heard that you went to church this Sunday. And you're like, yeah, I did. And you're like, but did you know about the Crusades? I mean, you laugh, but I've heard people say that. Um, you might be here today and you're a Christian. You might just kind of ignore the ugly parts of the church. Like, yeah, we don't talk about, you know, that uncle over there. We don't talk about that cousin. We don't talk about the Crusades because for you, your faith is, is kind of fragile. And for, for you, uh, faith is a zero-sum game. That if you would have to then investigate the crusades, if you would have to look at all these things, and you are afraid that you might be compelled then to walk away from the faith. And that's not what you want to do. And so we're here today to look at those things, to force you to come face-to-face -to -face with those things. And so a lot of times whenever Christians approach this statement, they do so in a way that's unchristian. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you can hold us to you know, a higher standard. We do, we do it in a way that doesn't have Jesus at the focus. We do it in a way that allows us to, to justify all kinds of evil and has been used to justify all kinds of evil. We say things, well, yeah, but as long as the good outweighs the bad, then, you know, it's okay. As long as the end justifies the means, yeah. That person, they did some bad stuff. 
But look at all the good. Look at the impact that they had on everything else. That's not a way that has Jesus at the center. And I know today as we go through some of these things, it's going to seem like that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to evaluate these things through the lens of Jesus. And I'm trying to look at the evidence. Trying to look at the evidence of, of these things from a historical perspective and not simply maybe what somebody has told you. Not maybe what you've heard on YouTube or what you've seen on TikTok. But rather some historical evidence from both a Christian and a non-Christian perspective. You know, people like to say that the church was responsible for the Crusades, the Inquisition, that the church is responsible for witch hunts, for slavery. The church is responsible for being anti-intellectual, for the church is responsible for being anti-science. But are any of those statements actually true? If you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, then you owe it to yourself to look at these statements, to evaluate them for what they are, to evaluate them based on the evidence and not based on what you would like to believe or based on what somebody has told you you should believe. And I know some of you might be thinking, well, that's your truth. That's your truth, Paul. I've got my truth, but that's your truth. Well, that doesn't always work out because that in and of itself is a truth statement. See, last night our carbon monoxide alarm started going off. I'd been doing some canning during the day and I was filling the tub, getting ready to, to give my son Judah a bath and the alarm started going off. Now, it's located in our hallway, and he frequently likes to try to play with it because it's got a bright red light on it, and it looks like a toy. And he's on occasion caused it to just chirp. So I'm like, okay, that's what he's doing. And so, you know, I, I, I leave the tub, and I go out, and I look at the thing, try to take it to silence it, but it won't silence. And then I look at the readout, and there is a number on the readout. It's like, oh, so there is actually carbon monoxide in our house. And I could have in that moment said, well, that's that thing's truth. I've got my own truth. My own truth said that there is no carbon monoxide in this house. But I had the alarm with the readout to beg otherwise, to say, here's the evidence. And so we called the fire department. They came out. Uh, their alarm started going off as soon as they stepped into the house. Um, luckily, we're all okay. There was no, nobody was sick because of it. Um, but I, I could have in that moment said, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I've got my own truth. My truth is that there is no carbon monoxide in my house. But I had the alarm. I had the fire department. I had credible sources saying, you might want to reconsider. You might want to believe these things because there is some credibility to those sources. And so we're going to try to look at some credible sources today when it comes to church history, when it comes to some of these things. Because perhaps the picture of the church, perhaps it's not as bleak as maybe what you've been told. I'm going to leave that up to you to decide. But perhaps you wrote off God for what? Because of what somebody told you to believe? Because of, of what somebody interpreted word events? And so perhaps maybe it's time to, to look at the evidence and reconsider faith. Now up front, I should admit that people have hurt other people in the name of Christianity. That Christians have done all kinds of, of things that some people might call violence in the name of Christianity. And if you're in the room today, you're watching online, you call yourself a follower of Jesus, we must take responsibility for it. It's not our fault, but it is our responsibility to say, you know what? Yeah, that, that is true. We, we have gotten some things wrong. And sometimes people do things and claim that it's Christian, but those things are sometimes opposed to the way of Jesus. In fact, Jesus knew this. 
Jesus talked about this. Jesus said that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but I will say that I didn't know you. The church is filled with all kinds of people that claim to be Christian but aren't. And I know some of you might be tempted to look around the room right now. I would just encourage you to look forward because we're not here today to try to figure out who's in, who's not. But Jesus talked about this. Jesus knew that this was going to be a problem. And he wrote this in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most famous sermon that Jesus gave over and over. He says this. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. It's already implying that, that the narrow gate, that there's few that go through it. But how narrow is the gate and how difficult the road that leads to life and few find it? This is kind of a scary passage. Because Jesus is saying, look, there's all these people that are walking down these roads, these broad roads that are easy, that are prosperous. And everybody's found it. But the narrow gate, the narrow road, the straight and narrow, as some people like to say, it's difficult. And few find it. The difficult way of Jesus, it's hard to find. It's difficult. It's, it's a way that embraces turning away from our other ways to follow the way of Jesus. Jesus continues on in his teaching. He says, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. And some of you might be thinking, yeah, I know some of those people. I know some people that outwardly, live, they look like they've got it all together, but inside Their life's a wreck. Inside, they're a terrible person. They might smile and wave at everybody, but inside, they are terrible people. And Jesus is calling out those people, the the people that have the outward appearance of being a follower of Jesus, but inward. Their lives are no different than the pagans, he's saying. You can disguise yourself with whatever facade or whatever costume that you want to, but that doesn't change what's inside. A wolf and sheep's skin is still a wolf. A ravaging wolf. And Jesus continues on. He says, you will recognize them by their fruit. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs gathered from thistles? And I'm here today to tell you that no, you cannot gather figs from thistles because I have a fig that I picked off my own fig tree. So for those of you that don't know me, I love plants. I'm a horticulturalist and I have a fig tree that has ripe figs on it right now. A nice little piece of dessert right there. But it's not possible. And like I said, in my other job, you know, I practice horticulture and I teach people all kinds of different horticultural practices. One of the things that I teach is grafting. This ancient technique of joining two plants together so that way they continue their growth together as one. And I teach grafting workshops and whenever I teach those workshops, invariably I will have somebody come up to me and say, you know my grandpa, you know my dad, they had this, this apple tree that had a peach crafted into it. And I just kind of politely smile and nod and then begin to tell them how that's not actually possible. It's genetically not possible to graft an apple and a peach because the two are incompatible. The two are not closely related. They're separated by all these other things. And when it comes to followers of Jesus, you are related to him if you are truly following him. If you are his child, then you are bearing fruit according to the thing that you are now connected with, the thing that you are now related to. And you are bearing fruit in accordance to your kind, in accordance with Jesus and the way of his spirit. And we're going to talk about what some of that fruit looks like in just a second. But Jesus continues on. He says, in the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. It's like, okay, that makes sense. 
A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. You know, you can't have a good tree producing bad fruit. You can't have a bad tree producing good fruit. But each tree produces the fruit according to its kind. And every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire so that you'll recognize them by their fruit. So again, talking about people that claim to follow Jesus, you will recognize them by their fruit. It says not that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Only the one who keeps my commands, my commands to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my command to love your neighbor as yourself. If you are obedient to those two commands, you will bear the, the way of my kingdom. You will bear good fruit because you're connected to me. But not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are truly obedient, unless you are connected to me. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Did we not go to church in your name? Did we not heal people in your name? Did we not give to the poor in your name? Did we not start nonprofits in your name? And Jesus will say, and I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers, because you were not actually following me. You had the veneer of following me, but your heart wasn't transformed by me. You weren't keeping my commands to love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God. The Apostle Paul, also one of Jesus' followers, talked about this. He talked about the way before Christ and what our lives looked like, and then he says, but. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. And joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Paul is saying, look, if you are following Jesus, if you are truly following him, then these are the things that will come out of you. These are the things that you will produce because you are, so to speak, a good tree like Jesus talked about. And a good tree will produce good fruit. And these are the good fruits of God's spirit that he has put inside of those who are truly his followers. And uh, just a little side note right now. If what you're consuming during the week, it's media, reading, people you're hanging out with, doesn't fill you with more of these things, if it doesn't help you to be more loving, if it doesn't help you to have more self-control, more patience, then perhaps it's time to reevaluate what it is you're spending your time consuming and who you're hanging out with. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if you're going to claim to follow Jesus, Jesus is saying, look, these are the things that you will produce. These things will come out of you. You will live differently because my Spirit is now living you. But if you're merely claiming to follow me, your life's not going to really look any different than the pagans and those who are not following me. You see, People who claim merely to be Christian but are not actually following Jesus live lives that are no different from anyone else. I love what Mark Clark, an author and pastor, writes in his book, The Problem of God, about this. He says that atrocities done in the name of Christianity are often not done because the teachings of Christianity are bad, but because some people who claim to follow Jesus don't actually know him or follow him. Basically, look, there's not a problem with Jesus. There's not a problem with the teachings of Christianity. It's the people. It's the people they are not actually following the things that Jesus taught them to live out. 
but they're following their own way. They're following a different way. So let's look at then some of the things that people say the church has been responsible for. And let's weigh that against the teachings of Jesus and the way of Jesus, the fruit that Jesus said that my followers will produce. The Crusades and the Inquisition. This was a time when Western Europe was, was fighting a complex geopolitical war when it was about expanding the empire and taking over new territories to, to bring more wealth and more control to the king. It was, a, it was a war that they fought while being culturally Christian. Because Christianity was in the culture, but they weren't actually practicing Christianity. It took place during a time that historians like to call the Dark Ages. You may have heard about the Dark Ages. It was a time when the state and the church were one. We talked about that last week, and that power corrupts. And so when wars were carried out against other nations, it was done so under the Catholic banner because the church and the state were one. But these, were, these wars were carried out about expanding empires and not about forcing people to convert. Yes, whenever they would capture people, they would force them to convert to Christianity, but it was forcing them to actually become German or forcing them to become English or forcing them to become Roman. It wasn't actually about forcing them to follow Jesus. And Jesus said that when he came to establish his kingdom, that his kingdom was not of this world. And Jesus rejected power over people. He said that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over you, but I say not so with you. That whoever wants to be great must become least of all and servant of all. And Jesus came to be servant of all, and he demonstrated that. He demonstrated that by by taking off his outer garments and taking the place of a servant and washing his disciples' dirty feet. He took the place, the lowest place, by allowing himself to be crucified on a Roman cross instead of using his power over people to take control. It's popular today to say that Jesus got crucified because he didn't have enough guns. That's simply not popular or true. Jesus was, control, was in control of his death at every point along the way. He allowed himself. He willingly laid down his life for the sake of us. And so the Crusades, the Inquisition, it doesn't line up with the teaching and the way of Jesus. Let's look at the witch hunts. Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code claims that five million women were killed during the witch hunts. Carl Sagan, the famous astronomer, says that the church killed perhaps millions of women. But neither Sagan or uh, Brown cite any sources to back up their claims, and that's because those sources don't exist. In fact, most credible historians, religious and non-religious, when they look at this period of history, they estimate that there were about forty to 60,000 people killed during the witch hunts. That's, and 20% of those were men, not just women. And that's a tragic number. But it's a far cry from the millions that people claim. The Salem, Massachusetts witch trials, they're also filled with extreme exaggeration that thousands of women were killed. But in reality, the best scholars can say that fewer than 25 were actually killed. Fewer than 25, 19 were actually killed, the rest died in prison or escaped. And so if you pause then to add up the numbers of the people killed during that time period, about 500 years, it adds up to about 200 to 250,000 people that were supposedly killed by the church. But most of these people were actually killed by warring empires and not about advancing Christianity. And those numbers are tragic. 200 to 250,000 people unnecessarily killed to just span an empire. But if we look over the last 100 years, 
we look at the last 100 years, the most violent regimes have been non-religious. They've been atheistic. And that doesn't mean, don't hear me say that, I'm, I, that atheism automatically leads to you killing people. Because I know some atheisms and, or atheists, and they don't want to kill people. They're really nice people. But a world where you take God out of the equation, you can make up your own morality, and you, it allows you to justify all kinds of things. See, Hitler, or, um, I come back to that. Hitler killed uh, over 6 million people. The Khmer Rogue killed over 2 million people. Stalin killed 20 million people. Mao killed 50 to 70 million people. Over the course of 100 years, if we add up those numbers, we end up with 100 million people over the course of 100 years. Alistair McGrath, an Oxford scholar, says that the 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history. That the greatest intolerance and violence of that century were practiced by those who believe that religion causes intolerance and violence. See, these people were, were carrying out the very thing that they said that religion causes. And trying to stamp out religion, they end up doing what they said, what they claimed that religion did. But the essence of Christianity is Jesus' life, his teaching, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Jesus never condoned violence. And though actions were carried out in the name of the church, those actions do not line up with the way, with the teaching of Jesus. And so when we look at these things, these events that happened, we must look at the teachings of Jesus. Again, Jesus did not use violence to overthrow the Roman Empire when he very well could have. He was God in the flesh. He could have commanded uh, angel armies to come down and overthrow his enemies, but rather he laid his life down for the sake of his enemies. And he calls us to do the same thing. Let's continue on. Let's look at slavery. Uh, people like to claim that Christians are pro-slavery, that, that, that Christianity supports slavery. But whenever you open up the pages of the New Testament, we see that it's simply not true because the New Testament doesn't encourage slavery anywhere. See, Paul, the apostle, wrote a letter to Philemon, who was a slave owner, encouraging him to take back his runaway slave, Onesimus. But not to accept him back as his slave, but to accept him back as a brother, as his brother in Christ. Paul also wrote that there is neither slave nor free. Jesus came to set the captives free. And that's actually from Old Testament prophecies that we learn that Jesus came to set the captives free. See, when we open up the pages of the New Testament, we see that it's very much pro anti-slavery. It's very much anti-slavery. And the people that use the Bible to justify slavery did so by finding loopholes. Did so knowing that they were actually opposed to the teachings of Jesus. Because whenever they gave Bibles to their slaves, they actually took out the parts of the Bible that were anti-slavery. Because giving them the parts that told them that Jesus came to set them free could have led to revolt and an uprising and would have been financially detrimental to the slave owners. But it was Jesus following Christians, those that were sold out to the way and the followings of Jesus, that fought for the abolition of slavery in the United States and in England and around the world. It's people like Harriet Tubman, people like Frederick Douglass, people like Harriet Beecher Stowe, people like William Wilberforce, the Quakers. We have a lot of Quaker or friend churches in this area. We have a lot of houses in our region that are part of the Underground Railroad it was those people that were motivated, not by the Bible, but because of their faith and the teachings in Jesus. 
help runaway slaves, to set the captives free. Because they saw all people as being made in the image of God. They saw all people worthy of dignity and respect. They saw the slave as their brother. Not as somebody to be oppressed for the benefit of someone else, but as their brother to serve alongside. People like to claim that the church is anti-science. That throughout history, the church has tried to suppress scientific thought. People claim that the church killed Galileo, but that's simply not true. Galileo was imprisoned because of some of his scientific uh, discoveries, but he was not killed. He was put under house arrest. It was actually the Reformation that we looked at last week that paved the way for people to begin to explore the created order. It provided a framework for them to, to begin to look at all things because they saw all truth as God's truth. They began to find God revealed in creation. And so they, they began to think for themselves. You know, up until that point in history, nobody had the framework to do what the, scientific, or the, what the Reformation in Europe allowed to happen. It gave birth to the scientific revolution. We have people like Newton and Kepler and Pascal, Boyle, Galileo, and I could go on. But all of these people were deeply committed to the Christian faith. Their own writings talk about how their faith in God motivated their scientific pursuits. They describe things like calculus, like geometry, like chemistry, like physics, like the laws of planetary motion, like pressure, vacuums, all these things. Think of where our society would be today without the work and the discoveries of these committed followers of Jesus. We wouldn't have our technology that we have today without those discoveries. You see, Christianity paved the way for science to happen, for scientific thought to take place. It's not anti-science. In fact, a fun little fact about Sir Isaac Newton is that he wrote over four million words of theology. Four million, in addition to his scientific pursuits. Theology is the study of God. So he was constantly pouring over the strict scriptures, trying to learn more about the God who he was trying to discover in creation. Four million words, that's enough to fill 30 volumes of books. It's an incredible amount of writing. People like to claim that the church is anti-intellectual, that Christians are against learning, that the church is against uh, uh, you know, teaching other people, but it's actually the Christians that set up the first schools. About 500 years after the, after the life of Jesus, the first schools were set up in monasteries that later gave way to uh, cathedral schools, which paved the way for the modern K-12 education system. Because in these schools, they also taught the faith but they also taught things like math and logic. And later on, they began to add other subjects. You see, before this time, people just, for the education, they just simply memorized propaganda. But it was the Christians that took learning to a new level, to, to intellectual exploration, and not just memorizing rote propaganda. Oxford University, founded in 1080, was founded with the sole purpose of educating pastors and sending them out to the world. And it was Oxford University that helped spawn Western civilization as we know it. See, Oxford, the people that studied the Bible there, gave birth to the things that we take for granted. Things like freedom of speech. Things like women's rights. Things like human dignity. Things like freedom from slavery. Things like rights to personal property in Western democracy. All of these things came out of these people's pursuit of Jesus. And then along came Cambridge. And the Puritans from Cambridge started Harvard University here in the United States in order to train up pastors in this new colony. They also went on to start Yale and Princeton 
Columbia, the College of William and Mary, Rutgers, University of Pennsylvania, Dartmouth. 167, excuse me, 167 of the first 182 colleges and universities in the United States were founded as Christian institutions in order to train pastors and educate the masses. You see, without these first universities, we wouldn't have every other major university that we have today. It was the Christians that started the modern K-12 public education system in Germany. You may have heard of kindergarten. It comes from the German kindergarten. Now, my German is terrible because I've never had a German class. But it comes from that, that idea. It was the Puritans that paved the way for free public education. We make fun of the Puritans because of how they lived and some of their, their beliefs about God. But the Puritans passed laws in their towns requiring the laws to provide free public education for all children. And our modern educational system was birthed out of that. And we can continue on and talk about the modern medicine. How was the Christians almost immediately after the time of Jesus that began to care for the sick, for the dying? You see, most people at this time where they were consumed with their own daily life because life was pretty difficult at that time. But it was the Christians that went out of their way to care for babies that had been left for dead. It was the Christians that, that swept in when fire and earthquake and famine had struck to care for people, care for the sick, the injured, and the dying. And we can continue on and talk about all those things. But whenever we look at the historical record, when we look at the sum of, of history and evaluate it for what history tells us and not what we've been told to believe, we see that perhaps the church hasn't been as bad as maybe what we've been taught. Perhaps the church has done some bad, but also perhaps the church has done some good. And when it comes to this history, we must also weigh it against the teachings of Jesus. Because it's not the teachings of Jesus that are bad, it's the people that claim to follow Jesus that are bad. And so whenever we bump up against people that did all kinds of evil in the name of Christianity, we must weigh their life, their actions against what Jesus said at the beginning. That if you're my follower, you will produce good fruit. And the Apostle Paul told us what that fruit looks like. It's things like love and joy and peace and patience. See, it doesn't mean that there's a problem with Jesus if the church has done some bad things, if the church has gotten some things wrong. It means that there is a problem with some of his followers. So perhaps it's time for us to begin re-evaluating the way and the teaching of Jesus. If you're here today and you would consider yourself a skeptic if you're searching, I'd invite you to, to evaluate these things for yourself, to do some research, not just take me at my word, but to do some research from some credible sources, not some sources that you are looking for to back up what you already believe, but some sources that perhaps might challenge you. Look at religious, look at non-religious sources and see what they teach you. Look at the teachings of Jesus. Open up the pages of the New Testament and begin to read. Because Jesus invites you into something better. He invites you into a better way. He invites you to follow him, not to follow his followers, but to follow him. I mean, think about it. Whenever it comes to your own life, you want people not to follow the way that you're actually living, but the ideal version of you. That's why if you're a parent and you have kids, and, you're, and you tell your kids to do one thing and you do the other thing, the opposite, and they catch you doing it, and they call you out, what do you say? You say, do as I say, not as I do. 
because you want them to follow the ideal version of you. And Jesus came to, to invite you into that ideal version of you. That ideal version of you that's filled with love and peace and joy and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And nobody argues against wanting more of those things. Nobody ever says, you know what, I need less of my marriage. I need less love. I need less patience. No, we don't say that. We say, I need more patience with my spouse. I need to have more love towards my spouse. Nobody ever says, when it comes to their kids, that they need more self-restraint, that they need more patience, that they need more or less gentleness, sorry, that they need less gentleness with their kids. No, we all say, I need more gentleness with my kids. Nobody ever says, I need less self-control. When it comes to work or to school, nobody ever says, you know, I've got enough self-control at work. I've got enough self-control at school. Nobody need more self-control not to look at somebody else's paper, not to take credit for their work. We need more self-control not to use somebody as a ladder to step on in order for us to get ahead. We need more self-control. We need more self-control not to dive into a relationship that the future version of us is going to regret. It's those things, that good fruit that Jesus calls us and invites us into if we just simply follow him. If you're here today and you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, Jesus is going to ask you, are you following me? Are you producing these things? Because if you're not, then perhaps you're not actually following me. Then perhaps it's time to reevaluate and take a fresh look. And if you're here today and you're a skeptic, I invite you to just step out. To just try following Jesus. Because here's the thing about following Jesus. Is that the first followers of Jesus, they didn't believe everything that Jesus taught. They didn't believe every, who Jesus said he was. But as they followed him, they went on a journey with him. And they discovered who Jesus was. They didn't have it all figured out at first. But they went on a journey. And Jesus invites you along on that journey to just step out and try following him. Because here's the thing that we know about following Jesus is that following Jesus will make your life better. And think about all the, the fruit, the good things that we want more of in our life, more patience, more joy, more peace. And following Jesus will make you better at life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you give us your spirit to produce in us good fruit. Lord, that you call us your sons and your daughters, that you craft us into your new kingdom community and your new kingdom family in order that we might be your witness, be witnesses to the way of your kingdom. Father, I pray for those this morning that are skeptical. Father, that they would be uh, just encouraged by your spirit to step out, to try following you. For those of us, as we evaluate our own lives, as we're following you, Lord, would you give us eyes to see those areas where we're not following you and give us the boldness to act. In your name I pray, amen.